Welcome everybody to our fireside chat with Bonnie Garmus, author of Lessons in Chemistry. I know many of you were a part of our recently formed book club. So you've read this book and I'm really excited to get to share some of your questions with Bonnie today and share some of our favorite excerpts from the book. So quickly, let me just introduce Bonnie. Um, she is, sorry, having a little screen share issue. Bonnie is a <laughs> copywriter and creative director who has worked widely in the fields of technology, medicine, and education. She's an open water swimmer, a rower, and a mother to two pretty amazing daughters. Born in California and most recently from Seattle, she currently lives in London with her husband and her dog, 99. Perfect. So without further ado, Bonnie, let's jump into some of the questions that we have. So I just want to quickly tell you, um, Women in Chemicals, our mission is to create and empower women in the chemical industry. And when I read your book, I immediately thought, wow, this is going to resonate so much with our community. We have an educational initiative um, to help facilitate professional and personal development opportunities for the 1,300 plus women in our community. Um, wow. So for our inaugural book club, we really just wanted a fun book that would resonate really widely. And this was the perfect choice. We had 50 plus members sign up for our first book club. We had three meetings where people could come and discuss how they felt about the book. And then we also used our online forum that's members only to have some discussion. So it was really great uh, way to speak to our community at large and really engage with everyone. Um, so I know there's some people within our community that weren't able to join book clubs, whether timing or whatnot. So I want to start by just having you give a quick synopsis of Lessons in Chemistry. Okay. Well, Lessons in Chemistry is about a woman named Elizabeth Zott. She is a chemist, a fictional chemist in the late 50s and early 1960s, who loses her job at Hastings Research Institute because she's unwed and pregnant. She goes on to become a very reluctant host of a TV cooking show, but she uses this show not so much to teach women at home how to make supper for their family, but rather to teach them that cooking is chemistry, because it is, and also because she wants them to understand what they're really made of at a molecular level. And so as she does her show against her producer's wishes, um, she starts to empower women across the nation to realize what they're truly, truly made of. Awesome. Thank you so much. So mm -hmm. first, we want to get into some questions about your writing process. Um, so can you share what your inspiration for writing lessons in chemistry was? Um, and yeah. was this a story that you had been developing over time or a specific moment of inspiration? Well, you know, first I'll say Elizabeth Zott had been a very minor character in another book that I'd started and shelved way before. Um, but that day I had had a really bad day at work and I'd been in a meeting. It was very misogynistic. Um, and I, I don't know, on that day, I was just suddenly I'd reach the end of putting up with it, of shrugging it off. And, um, I made my my feelings pretty well known in that meeting. 
Um, but I didn't get any support from the men in the meeting. And it was an all male meeting, by the way, I was the only woman in it. And after I left the meeting, I went back to my desk. And instead of working, I wrote the first the first chapter of lessons in chemistry. Actually, I wrote the first chapter and the last three lines. Um, and I really didn't think it was, you know, going to go anywhere. But Elizabeth Zott did. And I felt like she was sitting there that day. And she was saying to me, I know that you think that you're experiencing, you know, sexual discrimination. You have no idea what you're talking about. And she wanted me to tell her story. And so that's really how it all evolved. Okay. Love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so was this, I know this was your debut novel, but you had been working on a couple other projects or was writing a, a book your goal? And what industry were you working in when uh, you experienced this discrimination? The industry is technology. And I think, you know, um, probably it's the same for you in, in science, but in technology, it's not uncommon to be the only woman in the room. And I found that really disturbing, you know, because technology is very, very powerful. And to be so unrepresented in that room, I don't know, we think of the, the problems we have with technology today. And I just, I have to wonder, if there had been a different makeup to the people in the room, what we would have today. So yeah, it was in, it was definitely technology. And as for whether or not I wanted to be writing a book, I started writing a book when I was five, I finished it. It was only one page long. It was terrible. Um, and then I wrote another book when I was 12 and my librarian very graciously put it in the school library and no one ever checked it out because I checked every day and no one read it. Um, then I wrote another book. I wrote part of a book uh, that had Elizabeth Zott in it, uh, but I didn't finish that book. It just wasn't going the right direction. And then finally, I wrote uh, an entirely different book that got rejected 98 times <laughs> by agents. And then I wrote Lessons in Chemistry. So it's a process for writers. I mean, um, I think, you know, my, my journey sounds... Um, difficult, but I think most writers have exactly the same journey. It is, it is not easy. You mostly get rejected. I'm seeing a little bit of overlap between you and Elizabeth, like not taking no for an answer, following your <laughs> dreams. It's amazing. Um, so the characters that you develop in the book are so vivid. And I'm wondering, are any of the characters based on people in your life? Um, and specifically, our community wants to know any insight into the inspiration behind 630. <laughs> well, the people are completely fictional. Um, I've been a copywriter for a very long time, and I'm under about a thousand NDAs. I would never base a character on a real live person. Elizabeth Zott was created because that day I felt like I did not know what to say in this meeting to make it stop. You know, it was just this runaway train of these men taking over the meeting and mansplaining and stealing ideas and things like that. And I thought, I don't want my daughters to have to deal with this. I can't believe I'm still dealing with this. So that was really, I was creating a role model for myself when I wrote Elizabeth Zott. She's not based on anyone. However, 630 is based on a real dog, my dog, Friday. She she passed away some time ago, but um she was super smart and very, very sweet. We'd gotten her from a shelter where she'd been really very horribly abused. I mean, to the point where her previous owner was in jail. 
for the abuse that he'd heaped upon this dog. Um, my kids insisted that we adopt this dog and I didn't want to because she had two kinds of mange. She didn't have any teeth on the bottom and she smelled really bad. The mange went away. The teeth never, never, you know, came back and the smell never went away, <laughs> but she turned out to be this incredible dog. Um, and she was very, very good at learning language. She was very empathetic to adults, you know, to people, well, to kids as well. But she was also really empathetic to other animals uh, to the point where our hamsters used to like to sit on her head and things like that. You know, she would just accept all of that and nurture everyone all the time. And when I was writing lessons in chemistry, I would look up from my computer and she'd just be staring at me. I read everything out loud and I think she knew I was facing 6.30 on her. Um, and that's why 6.30 ended up having a voice. I had not intended that. I was just going to have a dog in the book and just have it be this presence. But I felt like she was saying, really? You're really gonna leave me out of this? Because um, she was really, really brilliant. She knew a lot of words um, that she taught herself. We didn't specifically teach her things, um, but she would demonstrate how much she knew all the time. We were transferred abroad to Switzerland and she learned German. And I'm not even kidding. She had to pass an hour long test in German and she did it flawlessly. She got a hundred percent. Yeah, she was really, really special. But you know, after I wrote the, wrote the book, I discovered I'd read about a dog called Casper who lived with a clinical psychologist who was teaching Casper words and Casper knew well over a thousand words. So, and now there are all these dogs everywhere that can read or, you know, whatever on TikTok. I'm never sure if TikTok is exactly the platform we should trust, but a lot of other scientists are studying how much dogs know. Wow. Okay. You're making me feel like a pretty bad dog owner. I, my dog <laughs> pretends not to know sit half the time. So that's amazing, but I'm I'm sorry to hear about uh, Friday's passing. It sounds like she had a very nice life with you. And oh, she, you know what? It, no, no, it was great. She, and, you know, it was her time. She was 15, okay. but yeah, no, she was amazing. And don't feel bad because I underestimated my own dog until she let me know. For instance, one day I couldn't find my keys to go to work. And I kept saying out loud, I, I can't find my keys. And Friday went and looked through all my bags. She looked through my gym bag. She looked through my briefcase. And then she started to go through the pockets of each of my jackets. And when she found the keys, she threw them on the floor. Like, where would you be without me? <laughs> this reminds <laughs> me of when uh, 6.30 goes and gets the yo-yo and drops it. The yo-yo. That's exactly where that came from. <laughs> so, so yeah, 6.30. She, she is, 6.30 is based on a real you know, being and the rest aren't. Yeah. You said something else in that answer where you said in the meeting that inspired this, you were feeling like, I can't believe I'm still dealing with this. Mm -hmm. um, and I, we started Women in Chemicals almost two years ago. Uh, my partner, Kylie and I, um, I was in a organization where I was the only female in a commercial role. And I was in sales and she was my only customer of 20 that was a female. And I felt that feeling all the time. So 
and just the, the way that our community has grown shows that that's still very much a, a feeling happening in the chemical industry today. And, you know, it's great to see your book kind of give voice to the feelings that I think a lot of us are having. So yeah, I'm, of, yeah, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> so I just wanted to tell you your knowledge of chemical reactions, analytical processes, equipment that you showcased in the book was impressive. So can you talk us through the research aspect for the chemical piece of it? Because that was really astounding for me. Well, thank you for saying that because it was just an absolute nightmare. I regretted uh, making her a chemist, but I was, I, because chemistry is hard and I just hope that all chemists understand the uh, admiration I have for you actually learning this science because I thought it was hard. Um, I bought a, an old textbook off of eBay because I knew I needed to keep the chemistry between 1952 and 1962. It's very hard to Google chemistry and not have it include interactions that were discovered in 1972 or whatever, totally destroys the timeline of the book. So I had to keep it to this textbook and it was really pretty helpful. Um, I also used though a children's book of experiments, chemistry experiments. And this book, it's called the golden book of children's chemistry experiments. And it was taken off the market. I think maybe in the 40s or 50s, because children were blowing themselves up. Um, I totally understand now, because I did the same. Back then, you could get a chemistry kit that, you know, would take out your entire neighborhood if you, it was amazing. So I'm, I'm not at all surprised that this particular book is pretty hard to get in the marketplace these days. Um, but yeah, no, thank you for saying that, because I worked really hard in the chemistry. I have to say, I after I started understanding more of the basics of chemistry, I became, uh, you know, this huge fan of chemistry. It really opened up my eyes that this is the central science. It's the, you know, the one that rules them all. And I had this incredible epiphany that people who go into chemistry are the ones who understand how, you know, everything works. And it was this knowledge that I kind of wish, I kind of think, we should be teaching children at a young age. It would answer a lot of questions. It could possibly solve a lot of problems about how we're all here and what we're all comprised of and how things work in the universe. Um, and there are quite a few books for children now out for chemistry. And I'm really an advocate for very young, I keep thinking, reading, writing, math, chemistry, this is what kids would look, and I think kids would love it. You know, they would just love it. So yeah, anyway, I had two PhD chemists, uh, two women read the, um, the manuscript to check for errors. And they were hilarious because they both said, oh my God, you know, I kept saying, well, what about this reaction? And then they'd say, oh yeah, it was, it was 1986. Yeah, you can't have it, you know, and so they, they saw the struggle that I was up against, but it was really, it was really wonderful to have them go through and make sure I was doing it right. That was a huge, huge deal for me. Definitely. You touch on a point that we talk a lot about um, our women in chemicals leadership team. We really feel that part of having more women in the chemical industry starts with visibility from a young age. So having 
chemistry uh, really visible to children in elementary school, in middle school, knowing about the opportunities in the commercial chemistry space. So we agree with you that chemistry should be really one of those primary subjects. Um, and I also didn't even think about the fact that you had to write it in this very specific timeline. So the attention to detail there, I'm sure was excruciating. Um, but that's <laughs> awesome to hear that you really went to such depth to really have it be very factual. Um, and it speaks a little bit to Elizabeth kind of being so detailed, like when she tells uh, Mad, like, it's not 99, it's 99.9%. <laughs> Facts yes. matter. So yeah, it's great. Yeah, no, you know, it did really give me, you know, because I'm not a scientist. I did, um, I worked for a little bit as a science writer, just a few years. And then I really concentrated on copywriting, which is an entirely different form. But in copywriting, you almost always write what you don't know. So I'm used to doing a lot of research on topics. I have to say, chemistry topped them all. I mean, I think you should all pat yourselves on the back because not all of us can be chemists and not all of us should be chemists, but it is hard. It is hard. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of chemists. Perfect. All right. So just to speak more broadly to the writing process as a whole, can you tell us how long the process was, what the hardest thing about it was, and what your biggest learning was from the experience of writing lessons in chemistry? Yeah, I think, you know, I had just come off of um, failing 98 times to get any attention for my previous book. And when I started this one, um, it was because of that anger that day, which I now officially call constructive anger. Um, and uh, instead of rage, people say, oh, she was in a feminist rage. No, it's constructive anger. Um, but I think for me, the way I write and the way I've always done my copywriting career is to, I get up early, I write early in the morning, and that's when I'm freshest. I drink an, an entirely, way, way too much coffee. Um, but that's how I, I really wake up and I start working on whatever I wrote the day before. and. Um, as a copywriter, you never not rewrite. Um, and so for me, most of a novel is rewriting. It's getting it right. And so it's not uncommon for me, and it was never uncommon in copywriting to write something 15 or 20 times, um, to work on every sentence and every transition, because it, it is you know very much of a puzzle to put all of this together and make it work. And there's rhythm and sentences and things to move the reader along in a way that the reader will want to keep going. So there are all these things about it that I, I really liked, but um, there were lots of low moments. I mean, I think every writer thinks I'm never gonna finish this. It's never gonna go anywhere. I don't know why I'm doing this. And yet you keep going. Um, and, and so I think that's really one of the great things about writing is that it is this kind of perseverance for every writer. You just have to endure the process of getting it done, which is fairly unpleasant sometimes. Yeah, this sounds like a lot of entrepreneurial struggles or really building anything. Um, and Kylie and I and our leadership team, as we continue to build women in chemicals, we're learning that like a brainstorming is, is similar to what you're talking about. Like we 
think of an idea and then we basically rewrite it completely before it goes out to our community. Um, and kind of everything is a work in progress all the time. So that's very interesting. <laughs> so as we go into our next section, we want to ask you questions about yourself, but we collected some of the favorite excerpts from our community from the book that we want to read aloud and just kind of revisit and then tie into a question with you. So, okay. In chapters 12 through 16, we witness Elizabeth's resilience as she navigates compounding challenges from the grief of losing Calvin, losing her job, and coming to terms with Calvin's parting gift. In chapter 14, Elizabeth is reminded of Calvin's childhood mantra that helped him through his turbulent seasons, every day is new. What quotes or mantras do you find encouraging and why? Wow. Well, I think... One of the things that I often think about is, you know, when I was writing that, that when I discovered that if I, I changed the tombstone a little bit, if I modified a little bit of what it would say every day is new, I really, I really like that. I think actually chemistry inspired that. Um, and just the idea of starting over, things aren't over. You can change again. You can come back again. Every day is new. But for me, I guess, I have this sort of, I have this mantra that I say all the time, which is, uh, I say every opportunity is an opportunity, which I know sounds sort of redundant, but what I mean by that is don't overlook anything that comes your way because you don't know where it will lead. And I think a lot of times these opportunities come to us and they're not perfect. And we go, well, you know what? That just, that's not perfect. It doesn't speak to me actually explore it. You know, as a chemist, you're already an explorer. But I think far too many people go, no, it's not just right. Well, nothing's ever going to be just right. And so I always say that, and I always think that, that every opportunity is an opportunity. And when I moved to London and I didn't know anyone, I, my daughter wanted me to take this class through Curtis Brown online to write to the end of my novel. And I didn't want to do it. Because I, I thought, I don't want to take another class. I already know how to write. Um, I just can't finish my novel. And I took that online class. And I got really great advice in that class. Just one thing, the instructor said, if you're stuck in your book, just make something happen. And so if I had not taken that opportunity and paid out my 200 pounds, just to hear that one sentence, I don't know if I would have finished the book. <laughs> so... That's sort of what I mean, you know, when I was thinking, I don't want to do this. And my daughter said, oh, you, you know, you should. And I did. And it, and it worked. That's great. So a lot of us work in the commercial side. We definitely have some technical folks, uh, but, you know, sales, marketing, finance, procurement. Um, and so I'm, I work in the sales. I'm now in products, but I was in sales for a lot of my career. And every opportunity is an opportunity. It's definitely a mindset that we as salespeople have to hone in on because there's a lot yeah. of times you'll get a really small inquiry or something that doesn't seem like it really is legs but if you really dig in you find that oh they're testing for something that might become commercial that could be huge so I think that really resonates to so many facets of life I love that um, speaking of mottos just wondering how you came up with the motto that Elizabeth ends every supper at six with Set the table, children. Your mother needs a moment for herself. 
Well, you know, I was thinking when I wrote that, that only Elizabeth Zott would just assume that the children would be watching the show with their mother. And I loved that confidence in her. When I was creating this character, I just wanted to have this very rational person that was imbued with a confidence that I envied. And so when she says that line, she's doing two things. One is she's assuming that children will watch the show, which is really designed for their mothers. And I love that. But the second thing she's doing is saying to those children, your mother is a person worthy of respect and you must respect her. And that message, they would hear it every single day, five days a week. And that message would percolate through a generation and a generation would be raised to believe their mother was worthy of time to herself, that she was a person of respect. And so I love that Elizabeth Zott would be the one to impart that. That's powerful, very powerful. So speaking of taking time for yourself, in chapter 17, Harriet gives Elizabeth the advice to take a moment for yourself where you're your own priority, not your baby, not your work, just you. So how do you carve out time for yourself, Bonnie? Well, you know, sometimes it's really hard. Um, Of course, it really is. But I have these certain things that I know make me feel better. And so whether it's a long walk with my dog or an erg session, which I do all the time, or something like that. I do one of those every day. Um, Because if I don't, I don't feel like I've actually lived a life, you know, it's life is very complex, and I, and it can get too busy. But for me, it's always usually exercise or a swim or something like that, that, that I get to do on my own terms, on my own, and I get to think while I'm doing it. I think that that for me is how I take a moment to myself. I'm glad you brought up erging because I wanted to ask <laughs> you about rowing as well. So rowing plays a big part in Elizabeth's life, um, Calvin's life and in the novel. So can you speak a little bit more to how rowing has played a part in your life? What inspired you to start rowing and what inspired you to include it in the book? Well, you know, I love water sports. I've been a swimmer since I was a little tiny kid and I did open water swimming. I started when I was four or five. My father was a really excellent swimmer and he just used to say, oh, we'll go swim out to that island. You know, I was a little tiny kid and I, all right, you know, and I would do this. Um, But I think I discovered rowing much later in life. I discovered it when I was 36 or so. Um, we'd moved to Seattle and I was standing, um, looking out at the lake, Lake Washington, and I saw this long, thin shell go by and I didn't even know what it was. And I said to my husband, what's, what's that? And he said, that's called rowing. And, uh, he was raised on the East coast. I was not. So I went down the next day and I joined a learn to row class. And then I ended up rowing competitively for a very long time. I really took to it, um, and I loved rowing. It's a really, um, I don't know if any of you are rowers, but if you are, you know, it is very much an endurance sport. It requires enormous cooperation between the people in the boat, but it's silent cooperation. Rowers don't speak when they row. You listen to the oars, you listen to the coxswains, but you do not ever talk to each other during a row um, because you don't want any distraction in the boat. Because what you're after is complete, utter 
balance. And balancing a boat with nine people in it is really, really hard, especially when you're moving at that speed with that much energy. It requires incredible cooperation amongst the rowers. And so I wanted to include rowing, A, because I knew about it and I didn't have to research it. But two, because it's so different from our workplaces where there's a lot of non-cooperation, where we have a goal, but you know, people and their egos get in the way. In rowing, you can't let your ego get in the way. It has to remain on land because once you get in that boat, you're part of this. It's even, I mean, there are lots of teams. There are baseball teams and, you know, football teams and people have jobs in a boat. Your job is to be like everybody else. And that is hard for people. But if you do that and you do it with strength and integrity, you'll win every race you're in. Thank you. Um, it's kind of cool to see the overlap where like Elizabeth learns rowing later in life, but I also loved that there was a physics portion to it. She could kind of tie that back into her fully rational self. She just decided I'm not actually bad at rowing. I just didn't understand it before. Um, yeah. and I think a lot of things in life, we like almost count ourselves out early because we're not good immediately. And I think that's almost a good mindset of like, I'm not bad at it. I just don't fully understand maybe how to be good at it yet. You know, that's it. I think we all give up a little bit too easily sometimes about things that are hard. And I think the the thing about rowing is that if you are in a boat and you're just learning to row and you have just one stroke in a boat, you'll and it's good, you'll know it. And you will never forget that feeling. And then it becomes this chase of trying to find that stroke again that made you feel like, wow, I don't think my oar touched the water. It, it is so, such a powerful feeling to row like that. And so I think um, it's one of the reasons why it's such, a, um, it's such a strange sport because rowers all the time get together and they talk about this one row they had. There's always one row they had <laughs> that was just perfect. Uh, and it, it's, it's like the holy grail, but it is amazing. And I think, I think, you know, again, it's this question of balance. There's so much imbalance in the world. We see it in climate change. We see it in meetings where they're all men and there are no women. We see it all over the place, but rowing is balance. And so I always think if we could bring some of those ideas and themes of rowing into the workplace, We'd be, we'd be different out in the world. Yeah. Yeah, you touched on something about doubting yourself, which kind of leads into our next question. So in chapter 41, Elizabeth closes her last episode of Separate Six with the following quote. Whenever you feel afraid, just remember, courage is the root of change and change is what we're chemically designed to do. So when you wake up tomorrow, make this pledge. No more holding yourself back. No more subscribing to others' opinions of what you can and cannot achieve. And no more allowing anyone to pigeonhole you into useless categories of sex, race, economic status, and religion. Do not allow your talents to lie dormant, ladies. Design your own future. When you go home today, ask yourself what you will change and then get started. Wow, very powerful. Um, and can you tell us about a time that you doubted yourself and held yourself back, how you overcame it? Do you still struggle with this sometimes? And how do you get yourself to start in those moments? 
Yeah, I think self-doubt is one of the um, tenets of being a writer. You know, you're constantly doubting um, yourself as you write because you don't know if anyone's going to want to read what you write. Um, and so that's that's always there. But I think self-doubt is part of the human condition, you know, especially in the Instagram age where everybody is carefully curated and they look like they're having these great, great lives on Instagram when in fact, you know, we're all struggling. I don't know anybody in the entire world who probably is not struggling in some aspect of their life. And I think, you know, in some ways the struggle is what really matters because if you can endure and rise above the struggle, then you've actually made a pretty big change in yourself. And when Elizabeth is giving that speech, one of the things that I really wanted to make sure people understood is that change we we think of change, you know, sort of this outside thing changes within us and we have to change things about ourselves, things that maybe we're ashamed of, or we'd rather be kept private or, you know, whatever it is, we, we really have to examine ourselves and figure out how we could improve personally and then apply these out in the workplace, out in the world, out in science, out wherever it is, we're completely capable of this but we do have to stop allowing people to tell us who we are because only you know who you are and only you know what you can really accomplish, but then you have to force yourself to believe it. And self-doubt, yeah, I'm the self-doubt queen. Um, but I think, you know, when I was writing this book, it was really great to have Elizabeth thought in my head because she just had none of it. She had no self-doubt. And to write someone like that, and you see how much time you're wasting doubting yourself, stop wasting your own time. You're doing just fine. Just keep going. Yeah. So I was reading a book or someone said this quote to me. I can't remember exactly which, but it's self-esteem is recognizing yourself as a limitless being. And I thought that was so powerful. And that is Elizabeth Dot to a T. Yeah. So it's cool. exactly her. <laughs> yeah, it's cool to hear that she inspired you throughout the process. This character that you created was actually who ended up inspiring you. Um, so kind of thinking about the changes within us sentiment, uh, that's something that Pine kind of struggles with throughout the book. And when he takes over as the producer, executive producer of the station, uh, that's a sentiment to him. Can you talk about a change that you've negotiated within yourself and how you've kind of moved that forward? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I was really afraid to do um, was actually compete in rowing. Um, it, you know, you get to the start line and I think you just think, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Um, it's just a race, but it, actually it's a really big deal because you're about to test yourself in a boat with your teammates against all these other boats and the testing, it, you know, at the start line is going to really hurt and you really have worked hard to get here and you know, these other people worked hard to get there. And it's just amazing the amount of, of um, anxiety that happens at a start line. I would also say that I've had that same anxiety, you know, at work, I've given a thousand presentations at work, 
but there are occasions when I would go to present something and I would just suddenly think, oh my God, my ideas are terrible. They're not, they're not going to be good at all. And I have to stand up in front of a hundred people and, and, you know, talk about a campaign or how this was going to work. And it suddenly, I don't know, just one day, I suddenly said to myself, everybody, everybody goes through this. And anyone who looks really confident, they're probably faking a lot of it. So all you have to do is fake along, <laughs> along with them and you'll be fine. You'll be fine. And you know, it, it really turns out that that's been true for me. So yeah, overall, I just think, you know, you have to have a little more faith in yourself. You really do. I like that quote you had about self-esteem. I think that that is exactly right on the money. Thank you. What you just said resonates a lot with me. Um, so a lot of people in our community and on this call have heard this before, but I'm terrified of public speaking. So being here today is a completely nerve wracking experience for me. So I just continue to make myself practice and also kind of just fake it. I'm like, we've done it before. Just throw yourself in and you'll figure it out. <laughs> well, you know, I'm glad you said that because there is another mantra we have always had in our family. And that is this mantra. If you're nervous, that means you're ready. Okay. If you're not nervous, you're not ready. So being nervous is actually your body's chemical way of telling you, wake up, pay attention, you're on, and you're going to be really good. I really, I really believe that. I told myself that at start lines, and I told myself that before I had to give these really large presentations. You know, if I'm not nervous, I'm not ready. <laughs> yeah, this is actually making my wheels turn a little bit and think back to instances that I prepared a lot for, whether that was athletic endeavors or professional, where I was nervous because I knew how much preparation went into it. And then other times where I feel like maybe the rug was ripped out under me and I just had no idea what I didn't know about the experience that I was about to have. So that's a really like a reassuring uh, mantra. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. All right. So in chapter 27, Elizabeth thinks to herself, she only ever seemed to bring out the worst in men. They either wanted to control her, touch her, dominate her, silence her, correct her, or tell her what to do. She didn't understand why they couldn't just treat her as a fellow human being, as a colleague, a friend, an equal, or even a stranger on the street, or someone to whom one is automatically respectful. So I think probably everybody in our talk today could give an example of when they felt like one of their colleagues or a male in their life um, wanted to do one of these things to them. So I think that resonates really deeply with all of us. I think you've spoken to it a little bit, but I wanted to just dig in a little bit more to any employment experiences you had that mirrored those of Elizabeth's or were similar. And when you look at women in the workforce and the progress made since the 1960s, what makes you the proudest? And then what do you think we most um, pointedly still need to work on to continue to elevate and empower women in the workforce? Well, in terms of me having uh, misogyny in common with Elizabeth Zott, I think, um, I think you know, I was in an, a big event um, a few months back and I had a male moderator and he said, um, 
have you ever experienced sexism? It was the funniest thing. You know, he actually said this. Have you ever experienced sexism? And I, I was so astonished by the question. The audience was mostly women at that one event. There were probably, well, there were 250 people in that event. And I said, has anyone, uh, let me just ask the audience, have, have any women in here experienced sexism? Every hand went up. And the guy, he was just like, oh. He was a really great guy. He won a Olympic gold in, in rowing, and he was just the greatest um, to talk to. But even he literally had no idea that every woman would raise her hand. And so in terms of me um, and Elizabeth Zott, I was certainly um, definitely passed over or pushed around in terms of sexual assault and things like that. I mean, I know so many women who have suffered at the hands of sexual assault, but more importantly, my best friend was the rape nurse at San Francisco General. And I went to pick her up one night um, after work, but she wasn't done. She was still processing the women who were lining the hallway. It was a Saturday night. There were still 12 more women to process. One was 80 and one was 12. The rest were in the middle. They were in various states of disrepair. Some were crying, some were in shock. That was her job. One in six American women will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. That is outrageous. I read in the UK here, 58% of all women in STEM are sexually harassed. That's in 2022. So we have quite a ways to go. And in terms of how we change that, I think some of the answers have actually come from my male readers. Um, I've gotten terrific responses from men who have read the book. And some men have been very honest, including one man who basically said, I'm Donati. I'm ashamed to say this, but that's who I was in my career. And now I have these grandchildren and they're girls and they're going out into the workplace. And I was that, I was that man. And now I just, I'm so sick at heart about it. Um, but what I've heard from men about the book is that they really appreciate that there are so many male allies in that book. You know, there's Dr. Mason who believes women are inherently stronger. There's Calvin Evans who falls in, lo in love with Elizabeth because she's of her mind, her, her intelligence. Um, there's Roth who writes an article about how women are important and that they should be listened to. And of course, there's Wakely who helps her with all of her, her issues and Walter Pine who basically sacrifices his career so she can go on TV and do what she thinks is right. There are a lot of male allies out there, but they don't speak up. And so what I've heard from men is this kind of awakening of, I guess we should be a little louder. Yeah, yeah. Being a little louder would be really helpful. Um, I think also women need to really support women at work because um, whenever you're going to be in that minority, you're always going to need um, to be able to depend on another woman who understands that you're at a, <clears throat> you know, you're at a deficit here. But I think in general, the message from men is we need to speak up. How do we do that? How do we speak up and keep our jobs? And what I've said over and over is, well, that, that it's called courage. You just have to do it. And that, you know, that's true for women too. And the more we do that, and the more children see us do that, the more children hear these messages, 
that women are just as smart and just as capable as men, then we begin to really cut away at this at this problem with sexism and misogyny. Um, but yeah, we need we need support from that community and the male community. I feel like they can be woken up. Awesome. I have I want to dig into this more with you because I think that this is really ripe and really at the heart of our community's mission. Um, but the story you told about being asked if you've ever experienced sexism and every hand going up in the room kind of reminds me of the Me Too movement when everybody was posting Me Too about being sexually assaulted on social media and just hearing the shock from so many men in my life um, to hear that so many women had been sexually assaulted and just this like, I can't believe it mindset. And Basically, every woman was like, I can believe it. Um, And I like your point about allies. And I really want to dig into that. We have a really strong community of allies. And we actually have an ally advisory board as part of our women in chemicals um, advisory organization, which is men that are advising on how we can better incorporate other men as allies toward our mission. And there's actually a quote that you wrote that I want to share. Um, So chapter 37, Elizabeth asks, imagine if all men took women seriously, education would change, the workforce would revolutionize, marriage counselors would go out of business. So at Women in Chemicals, we're always looking to engage our allies more in supporting our mission. What tactical things do you think men can do to better support women in professional environments? And where do you think they're still very much falling short? And maybe you have some anecdotes from some of the men that have written to you that you could share. Well, I'll tell you one thing that I'll, um, there's a book that came out. I want to see if it's sitting here. No, it's not. Um, It came out last year. I highly recommend it. It's called The Authority Gap. And it's a a very well-researched nonfiction book um, about why there's this authority gap between men and women in the workplace and the assumptions that both sexes make about each other and and about how the workplace operates. It's really fascinating. For instance, in that book, there was a study that shows that men still believe women who are attractive at work are dumber. Um, Yeah, where did that come from? And then this was the really interesting one. Uh, and I think, you know, especially for an all-woman group, this is really important. Um, there is a belief that if a woman is of childbearing age, she may leave to go off and have children, leaving her project or her company in the lurch. What I did not realize until I'd read this book is that women in their 20s and 30s who are at that age to have children or even 40s having children uh, they leave at the same at the same exact rate as men in those age groups. So it has so much less to do with this. Oh, they're going to dump us and go have a child. Uh, men are doing exactly the same thing, but they're furthering their careers. Um, one of the other great things about the book is that it talks about how childcare works and maternity works in other countries. And, you know, the Scandinavian countries have it all over everyone else. They, when they give uh, a leave to go have a child, it's for both parents. 
It's not for one parent. And it's all about the equality of one parent stays at home. It could be the dad, it could be the mom, but they split it. So there's, there's equal responsibility for childbearing, child care, child education, all of it. Um, and their policies, of course, are extremely generous, but their life policies, they make sense. They bring balance to those communities. So uh, for instance, most countries like Iceland, Sweden, uh, Norway, Finland, they offer women and men who are about to have a baby a year off. You can split that between the two parents. You should. In fact, if the man doesn't take the leave, that's very suspicious, which I love. <laughs> and yeah. you can also ask, and you're paid 80% of your wages. In Germany, your job does not go away for three years. They can't give it to somebody else. Um, and so they take child rearing seriously, but they take this idea of this is not just the woman's job seriously. And I think that, you know, Finland is rated number one in education. Some of their ideas that they've really instilled in their community are reflected in how well that populace is doing. And I feel like the United States, the UK, plenty of other countries could follow that model um, because it's really working there. Yeah, that's now a, I forget the rest of your question. <laughs> that's a great point and something that really I I think we need to have way more emphasis on. Um, so women under the age of 30 have actually closed and surpassed the wage gap. So women under the age of 30, this is in the US, are actually now making more than their male counterparts, which is amazing. But then yeah. that dropped off because of employers suspecting that maternity leave or that the mother's automatically going to have to leave work early. So I think specifically in the U.S., we need to do a better job of supporting mothers in the workforce. And I know there are still companies in our industry that don't even offer maternity leave. So if you want to go on maternity leave, you have to take short-term disability. So we're categorizing... Yeah. As an illness, yeah. as a disability, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just crazy. No, it's it is it is really crazy. And you know, we have a couple of friends who live in these European countries, and you know, I have to say, the men are sort of like, wait, why why wouldn't the husband stay at home? You know, it's almost so they've reached a generation. They're beyond us. They've moved beyond this idea that only the woman picks up the child from school. Um, you know, that that's not true there. I would love to get to that point. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing to hear. Hopefully we're on our way. Yeah. So one more question and then we'll move on to some more, some fun questions as we wrap up. Okay. So in chapter 13, Elizabeth describes Miss Frask saying, she, like so many other women, assumed that downgrading someone of her own sex would somehow lift her in the estimation of her male superiors. While this doesn't happen as often anymore, there can still be a tendency for women to feel that there are a certain amount of female leadership spots or executive spots up for grabs. And I know very early in my career, I felt this pressure a little bit that, you know, I had to be the best woman because there were only a couple female spots. <laughs> So what advice do you have for our community to combat this mindset? And you had touched on, you know, this idea of women helping women. How can we do that better? Well, I think, you know, one of the things is to uh, always, for instance, in a meeting, 
if you notice that a woman is being spoken over or you notice that she's sitting very quietly is to engage her and, and ask for her contribution or to stop someone who's talking over her and say, I'm sorry, she was still speaking. I just wanted to hear what the rest of what she had to say. You know, I had the meeting that I was in that was so bad. I was giving a talk in Seattle and one of the people who had been in that meeting, that meeting was in the Bay Area, but one of the people who had been in that meeting uh, came up to me at the signing and he said, I just wanted to thank you for not naming any of us by name in your book. <laughs> um, but he apologized, you know, for that day. He said, you know, I've heard you talk about that day and I know what day it was because I was in the room and I didn't support you. He said, I was so stymied by having this important person there, this vice president, everybody knows this name, you know, and he was there and he was just lording it over everybody. And, and he said, and I saw all these other men fold. And he said, you were just, you had to stand alone. And I am so ashamed of that day. And so I think, you know, if we can encourage people and lead by example, by stopping someone and saying, I'm sorry, this person was still talking. I want to hear what she has to say. Or engaging that person saying, we've heard from everyone, but I'd really like to hear from so-and-so. Bringing everyone to the table. We need more voices, not fewer voices. And we don't need the really extra loud voices to control the meeting. So that's what I would say is just try to engage and communicate with everyone. Bring them to the table. Don't let them be excluded. Definitely. I, I know there's a statistic out there that men will apply for a job if they meet like 40% of the criteria and women won't apply unless they meet 100%. And speaking for <laughs> or myself, 110. correct. I've been in some of these meetings where I'm like, no one cares about my opinion here. I'm just here for visibility or to take action items out of it. And you're right, people really do. We need more voices. We need to hear everybody's opinion. So it's a good yeah. reminder to keep in our heads. Yeah, and I think you're right. You know, I know my own daughters are like that where they're like, well, I'm not, I'm not totally qualified for this job. You know, they have 90% of the requirements where here's Joe Schmo applying for it and he has none of them, but he's just like, you know, but I'm good. Um, and I think men are raised with that kind of confidence. A lot of men are, um, but women can be too. And so it starts at home with your own mom empowering you and saying, yeah, you can do that. You can do that. And you can be humble and make mistakes and admit your mistakes and move on. But be confident, be confident in yourself. That's what yeah. I keep thinking is the main rule. Yeah. The world won't end if you make a mistake. It's fine. Yeah. There's another book that was recommended to me that kind of hits on this. It's called Brave Not Perfect. And it talks mm -hmm. about how we raise our, raise our sons to be brave and our daughters to be perfect. And I think that kind of perpetuates. Yes, absolutely. And these are all the kind of myths of society that we all live under. And, you know, um, that's kind of why I like chemistry, because it dispels myths. Science has a way of doing that. Science is just based on evidence. And evidence is really what we could all use a lot more of in our irrational society. <laughs> yeah. So Lessons in Chemistry is currently being produced as a series on Apple TV Plus to be released in 2023. Congrats. Uh, Brie Larson you. will be Elizabeth Zott. 
So can you talk a little bit about the process of choosing Apple as the partner to give the, the TV rights to? Have you been involved at all? And then finally, if you had cast the film or as you were writing, kind of who were you imagining for Elizabeth, Mad, and Calvin? Well, okay, so the way it works is um, a book is optioned and then it just sits around for three years. 98% of all options never go forward. And my book was optioned uh, before optioned before it was even published, which was a little bit scary. Um, and honestly, I thought I'd be one of those 98%. Um, that's what happens to all authors. So, but I was very surprised when suddenly all these Hollywood studios were bidding on it. I had 38 bids. Um, and then I just, I narrowed it down to eight. And then I chose Aggregate Films, who's run by uh, Michael Costigan, who did Broke Rat Mountain, and Jason Bateman. And they were really interested. Um, They've been contacted by Brie Larson. Brie had read the, the manuscript and she really, really wanted to play Elizabeth Zott. And so unbelievably, she Zoomed with me and she explained why she wanted to be Elizabeth Zott and what she would bring to it. She was incredibly impressive. She's a super nice person. She's so normal um, that I, you know, it's almost like, I don't know, really? Um, but it was very exciting. And so she attached herself to the project. And when you have an Academy Award winner attach herself to your project, it starts to pick up speed. And then they're the ones who take it to all the streaming companies and pitch it. And it was Apple TV who uh, won the pitch. So that's how that works. And then unbelievably, they started work. I'm going out to the set in two more weeks to see the final filming of Supper at Six. And um, it will be on Apple streaming um, sometime like late summer, early fall of 2023. And it will be different from the book, but different, I think, in, in the ways that Hollywood needs to do it. I'm not writing the script, but I do read all the scripts. I really love the script writer and I let them do their job. It's a different animal and you have to kind of walk away, but it's yeah. good. I think it'll be fun. Yeah. So I actually, my mom is on this call today. Hi, mom. And I use her Apple TV Plus. So I told her <laughs> when I saw this, you have to keep Apple TV Plus long enough for me to watch Lessons in Chemistry. <laughs> okay. Can I just tell you that when Apple signed this, I thought, oh, good. I'm going to get a free subscription to Apple TV. I did not. <laughs> I had to buy my own. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean. I know. What I are you know. Gonna do? I'm gonna. I know. We'll post this, and I'll send them an email. <laughs> well, Give they've Bonnie been really great to me. Yeah, yeah, for <laughs> life. No, they've been they've been fantastic, and uh, I'm really I have a great team. I could not be luckier if I tried. That's great. So, if you had cast the film, who would you have chosen for Elizabeth, Mad, and Calvin? Or did you have specific ideas in your head when you were writing? You know what? They asked me who I would have cast and I had no idea when I had such a strong idea of who these people were and what they look like in my head. I never as uh, associated them with real life actors. And so I was so taken aback by this question. It took me two days to answer their email. And then I had to go through all these actors and go, well, I mean, I guess maybe this person. Um, they were not super impressed with the fact that I didn't know who any of these people were in Hollywood. Um, but I really like who they've cast. I think they've done a really wonderful job. 
Um, and the, the thing about casting that I didn't realize is that it's not only who is great for the role, it's who is available that week you're filming that scene. It is, it is just a nightmare of, of calendars and, and diaries and all these dates. I, have ne- I would never want to be a casting agent. It looks like this, the, you know, the third circle of hell trying to coordinate everybody. I honestly, so I'm very, I'm very pleased with who they've cast. I think it's going to be great. Okay, cool. So it sounds like you've been involved in the production a little bit. Can you speak to that? Well, actually, I just read the scripts and I talk with the producers occasionally. Um, and I'm going to do a little bit of marketing with them when I'm out in a couple weeks. But really, honestly, the best thing a writer can do is, and every writer gave me this advice, you get the you get it sold, which is just a miracle, and then you turn and you run the other way, because unless you have full control of the script, they have to manipulate it and chop it up, add new characters, add new situations, and it is painful for the writer to watch. Um, and so I have, in my mind, I came to terms and I said, just let it go and let it be its own animal, and that's what I've done. And I think. I think it's working. I mean, when I'm on the set, I may have a heart attack, <laughs> but, but uh, I don't know. It's, I, th- I think that they've, they've captured the spirit of the book. Um, and I'm, that's as much as you can possibly, possibly ask for. There's some things I kind of like, oh, that's a little bit contrived or whatever, or I don't think she would have said that. And I can say that to them, but they are not under any obligation to take a single idea from me. You know, they bought the book. It's there. This is, the series is theirs, the book is mine, and we both know it, but we both we both get along really well. That's cool. That's awesome to hear. Yeah. All right. So as we wrap up, just wanted to ask what you're working on next. Any other books or mm-hmm. anything we can yeah. look forward to? Well, <laughs> I'm working on a new book, but and I would tell you about it, but it keeps changing. So if I told you what I was doing, it'll be very different by the time it comes to market. So I won't even go into it, but I will say that I really like the protagonist and it's a man. I really like being in his head and I'm having a lot of fun writing it, but um, it's going slowly because I have to do so much promotion for lessons in chemistry still. So slowly, but surely it will come. Okay. Well, we'll be on the lookout for it. And Bonnie, I want to just thank you so much again as we wrap up today. Um, And I also wanna just give a special shout out to Caroline Thomas, our education chair who ran our book club and will be promoting our next book for a Q1 start date. So thank you everybody for joining today. Thank you, Bonnie, for being with us and hope everybody has a great day. Thank you so much for the invite. I really loved it. Thanks.